I have this, um, I told Elder Denslow that in any layer of leadership, and you know this if you're in one, um, you get credit for things that you never did. <laughs> Many times negative, but this time positive. Elder Denslow wasn't here yet when the union gave us $2,000 for the Burmese, it was, they were all Burmese kids at Canvas last summer. And that helped to buy all their books and their gas and so forth. So they sent a special card for him. I'm not gonna actually give it to him now because we're gonna meet with the Burmese uh, afterwards just very briefly. And I think I'll do it in front of them. But uh, that is uh, something that's coming. So um, hope you'll accept that. Absolutely. And uh, <laughs> tell them the rest of the story about what it did for their education. Yes, so the, um, thank you. The, the kids uh, raised right at $11,000 canvassing, and that was matched. So $22,000 went to Battle Creek Academy for their education, and that was huge. That has really helped a lot of them stay in school. So, um, and we just recently had to put a little article in the, in the shopper thanking the community for, for helping the kids. But yes, and not to mention, uh, Elder Denso, the experiences that they had and the testimonies as they met people door to door, they really grew. And um, we have John Landis to thank for, uh, for leading that out. He's actually down in Children's Church right now. But um, it was um, getting a program like that started from nothing is a fairly monumental effort, but um, praise the Lord, it was uh, very well worth it. All right, with that, Ken Denslow is the president of the Lake Union Conference of Seventh-day Adventists before assuming this position in 2021. So he's only been here less than six months, we talked about. <laughs> so he's uh, quite new here, but not really new to the area. Uh, he used to be the assistant to the president of the North American Division, Seventh-day Adventist Church for over 10 years. He's also served the church in several pastoral, educational, and administrative roles in Illinois, Maryland, and Michigan. Ken and his wife, Patricia, have two married adult children, Michael and Kristen, and they take every opportunity they can, I understand that feeling, to visit them and their granddaughters in Texas and Illinois. Ken also enjoys cycling. He'd get along well here at the tab. We have quite a few that, uh, that do also, and reading. So with that introduction, Elder Denslow, the time is yours. Well, good morning. Happy Sabbath. Having a good day so far? Me too. If I can keep this headset on, every time I turn my head, it wants to come off. Um, yeah, we're just really glad to be back in the Lake Union. Uh, most of the years of our ministry have been spent here. Uh, started out here in Michigan. Uh, I was boys dean at Cedar Lake Academy. They hired me to be the boys dean when I wasn't quite 22 years old yet. I don't know what they were thinking, um, but uh, it, it, it turned out to be uh, three really good years. And then the conference picked me up and sponsored me to the seminary. And uh, we started our pastoral ministry here in um, Ludington, Manistee, and Irons. When the conference president called to tell me where I was going, I heard the word Irons, 
And I heard Manistee, and it sounds a lot like Manistique. And I thought, oh my goodness, we're going to the Upper Peninsula. <laughs> but not so, just north of, of um, Muskegon, and we had uh, some wonderful years there before going off to pastor in the state of Maryland. So our roots run deep. My wife uh, is from Goebbels, not too far from here. And I was born in Owasso, so we, we are Michiganders who have come home to Michigan. And uh, we were enjoying that transition. This morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, what it means to be strangers and pilgrims. I was president of the Illinois Conference for a number of years and secretary before that. And we used to have a Chicagoland convocation where we would gather all of the members from the uh, Chicagoland area together in a, in a common area. One year we used uh, Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Wheaton College is very well known among evangelicals. It's a kind of a center for even the evangelical world. And we were able to rent their campus for our convocation. The Illinois Conference, Conference is very diverse, ethnically, racially, very diverse. And uh, we came onto that campus in a town that is not racially diverse or ethnically diverse and to a campus that is really not ethnically or racially diverse. And I thought to myself, as we were getting close to that moment, I wonder how this is going to go. I wonder with thousands of people coming in to this town, to this campus, I wonder if there will be any sort of feedback or reaction from the local community. Late in the day on Sabbath, um, the person from Wheaton College who was serving as our hostess for the weekend, I ran into her there on campus and I said, how are things going? And she said, they're going very well. And then she told me this story. She was out in the middle of the campus and a couple from Wheaton who were well known on the campus, they were walking their dog through the campus just out for a stroll and they saw all of these people and they saw her and they said, what's going on? A lot of people there that they weren't used to seeing on that campus. What's going on? And she said, she said, the Seventh-day Adventists are on our campus this weekend for their convocation. Then she told me this, the people, the couple looked all around them at all of these people wandering the grounds of the camp, campus. And then they turned back to her and she said, they making reference to the diversity that was there. They said, this must be what heaven is going to be like. <laughs> Isn't that great? This must be what heaven is going to be like. So we look forward to that day when, when all people live together in peace and harmony, led by one leader, Jesus Christ, until then, we live here. We live here, but how do we live here? That's the theme of the sermon this morning. It's the theme of Hebrews 11. It's a wonderful chapter, been preached on often. We find that famous chapter 11, we find a, a hall of fame of faith. 
Uh, we can read through that right now real quickly. Starts off with uh, verse 4. Talks about Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith Enoch, and then by faith Noah, and by faith Abraham, and Sarah, and, and then it goes to, uh, again to Abraham in verse 17, and talks about Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, all of these great characters from the history of the world. But smack in the middle of this list of, of great characters of faith, right in the midst of that, he breaks off from talking about these individuals and, and their individual accomplishments or the reasons that they might show up in a, on, a, on a list of the faithful. He breaks off in, in the middle of this to talk about the characteristics. The characteristics. It's all fine and good to list people, but I want to know what put them on the list in the first place. And so he tells us, these all died in faith. Verse 13, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Right there, it talks about what got people on the list. Uh, We see Abel, Enoch, it's all fine and good, but we want to know about the characteristics. The first one is this, the first characteristic of people of faith, they embrace the promises. They embrace the promises of God. How do they embrace the promises of God? It says right there that they, they did it through faith. Through faith. Now, faith, it says in verse 1, is the evidence, is the faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You know, it really drives me crazy when people talk about faith as being a leap in the dark. It really drives me nuts when people say that faith is a leap in the dark because it totally negates all of those pieces of evidence that God has given us throughout the history of this world. It says it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's evidence every day in our lives. We can look at, at, at little things that happen in our lives. We can see small answers to prayer and we can see the evidence that God is trustworthy that we can put our confidence in him, that, that we can have faith. Faith is based on evidence. It's based on who is making the promise. God, when he has been tested, has proven himself over and over and over in the lives 
of his followers, the faithful. And faith is based on evidence. What is being promised? For Abel, his sacrifice pointed forward to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he accepted the promises made by God to his parents about a coming Savior. For, for Noah, it was a promise of protection in the time of storm. For Abraham and Sarah, it was the promise of a land full of descendants. But the Bible says these people also saw themselves as pilgrims and strangers here on this land. They were clearly, clearly a promise away from the homeland, the heavenly country. There's evidence in Scripture. None of us, I don't think anybody here has ever been to heaven. But we've, we've, we've tested Scripture. We've, we've, we've tested the faithfulness of Scripture. We've, we've, we've compared passage to passage. We've compared the prophecies with history. And we've come to have confidence in Scripture. And the evidence is there that there is a homeland to come. In all ways testable, God has proven faithful. And so therefore, we can trust Him for the promises which are yet to be fulfilled. Do you believe that? There's evidence in Jesus. Scripture says that a sacrifice would come. The Old Testament sacrificial system pointed forward to Jesus. And just on time, according to the prophecies, Jesus showed up and fulfilled his ministry here on this earth. The Son of God come into this world to offer himself a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. There's evidence in changed lives. <laughs> I saw a, a video just recently uh, that was made here in the Michigan conference. Uh, the story of a young woman who tried to commit suicide. Had gotten so hopeless that she tried to kill herself. And when she awoke, you may have seen this video. I don't know. I hope you have. When she, when she was revived, the... She, she said to God, she, this is her testimony, she said, God, I'm mad at you because you didn't let me succeed in committing suicide. But now, since you did save me, it's up to you to fix things. So she started a search, and her search led her to a Seventh-day Adventist church, I believe it's in Petoskey. And the elder of that church, a man in his late 80s, began to have Bible studies with this young lady. And through those Bible studies, she came to faith and confidence that she could trust the God of heaven. She turned her life over to him, and today she is happy in Jesus. And that story is repeated over and over and over again. Evidence and changed lives. People who have had an experience with Christ going and sharing that experience with others and those people being changed. We all have a story to tell. Promises have been made to us that have been fulfilled by the God of heaven and we can tell those stories and they'll be powerful in changing the world. Bertrand Russell British philosopher was no friend of Christians or of believers in general. He was an avowed atheist. But he wrote these words that I, I, I learned years ago that uh, I think there's some truth in. 
He said, the problem with the world is that the stupid are cocksure and the intelligent are filled with doubt. The stupid are cocksure and the intelligent are filled with doubt. That's quite an indictment, but I don't think it has to be true. I think it often is true, and that's why he made the observation. But God is calling today for people who have examined the evidence, people of intelligence who have examined the evidence and have concluded that he is trustworthy, that one can place one's hand, one's, one's life in his hands with confidence and know that they are safe. What we need is intelligent people who have examined the evidence of faith and developed a faith and can speak boldly of that faith because of experience based on evidence. Second characteristic of those people who are listed in, in Hebrews 11. The second one is they sought a homeland, a better country. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims here in this world. Um, why would the faithful be self-described as strangers and pilgrims in this world? Y years ago, I was flipping through channels on the television. Uh, not a good practice, but I did it, I'll, I'll confess. And I stumbled across the 70th birthday party on TV, the 70th birthday party of Willie Nelson. Now, some of you don't know who Willie Nelson is because you're just, you're good people. Some of you don't know who Willie Nelson is because he, you're too young. Uh, but Willie Nelson was a country star, still is, a very old man today. This was his 70th birthday. He's, he's in his late 80s today. And on this 70th birthday party, they were a, there were a number of cameo shots that came up from friends and other music stars of the time. One of them was Steven Tyler, who was the lead vocalist in the band Aerosmith. And I'll never forget his cameo spot on the Willie Nelson 70th birthday celebration. He said to his friend Willie Nelson, Willie, I hope hell will be as much fun as it has been getting there. <laughs> I hope hell will be as much fun as it has been getting there. I changed the channel, moved on to other things, and I'm sure across America, other people changed the channel just because they lost interest. Stephen Tyler trying to shock them didn't succeed because what he said wasn't all that shocking in the lives of many people who were watching. It was a humorous thing to say, but, but for somebody who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, who has grounded their lives on the promises that he has made in Scripture, those words should rock our socks. I hope hell will be as much fun as it has been getting there. No wonder people of faith describe themselves as pilgrims and strangers on this land, on this earth. 
Now, Jesus turns humanity upside down. The world says, grab power. Jesus says, submit to one another. The world says, be number one. And you can see it in the, in the bookstores, the lines of book about, books about how to gain power, personal power. But Jesus says, the first shall be last. The world sets minimum standards. Jesus sets maximum standards. He says, go for, be all that you can be. The world says, get justice for yourself. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. All the conventional wisdom of this earth is turned upside down in the teachings of Jesus Christ when taken at their word. No wonder people of faith are described as strangers and pilgrims in this world. You're here in Battle Creek. You live here. You probably used to preachers coming here all the time from other places talking to you about how remarkable it is that you live in Battle Creek, the place where the Seventh-day Adventist Church had its roots. You know those roots. You've wandered the streets of the Advent Village. And, and really, it's interesting to hear people come and reflect on their new experience. But for you, it's, it's been here all along. And so because you're so familiar with the history of, of the church and the people who, who were pioneers of this church, you, I would assume you're very familiar with those early Advent hymns. You've heard Jim Nix come here and, and lead you in singing with groups visiting from other places, I'm sure. And you've heard songs like How Far From Home by Annie Smith. And, and There'll Be No Sorrow There. And I'm a pilgrim and a stranger. When shall I see Jesus, they sang. What? Never part again? <laughs> I'm but a stranger here. One goes, heaven is my home. Earth is a desert drear. Heaven is my home. Danger and sorrow stand round me on every hand. Heaven is my fatherland. Heaven is my home. What though the tempest rage? Heaven is my home. Short is my pilgrimage. Heaven is my home. Time's cold and wintry blast soon will be overpassed. I shall reach home at last. Heaven is my home. These were the sentiments of the people who formed the church that we are a part of today. They were looking, I mean, it shows up in the name they chose for us. Seventh day Adventists. They sought a homeland, a better, a heavenly country. It always has been and always will be a minority who will grab hold of those promises and see themselves as strangers and pilgrims in this country. People of faith described as strangers and pilgrims. That's the second characteristic. The third characteristic is they refuse to go back. Now things can get rough for people of faith. They can get very rough. Um, listen, listen to this, Ele uh, Hebrews 11, beginning with verse 36. Talking about the, the, the experience. Let's start with 35. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Verse 36. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. 
They were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves, and, and all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. It still didn't come. They died without seeing the second coming. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us can get rough for people of faith. After some particularly difficult teachings of Jesus, the multitudes just evaporated. And he was left with his inner circle surrounding him. And, and there was murmuring among them. You remember the story. There was murmuring among them and Jesus turns to them and he says, what, are you gonna leave me too? <laughs> I've said some difficult things here. Are you, are you gonna leave too like the others? And They said, through Simon Peter, by the way, he was their spokesman. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They say that persecution of Christians is higher there are more Christians being persecuted for their faith today than ever before in the history of the world, in the history of the church. Now, I want to tell you that, first of all, some of those people who are being persecuted don't know Christ. They're part of, of ethnic groups that are identified as Christian, but they're being persecuted because they're part of the ethnic group, which happens to be Christian, not because of their, necessarily because of their faith in Christ, but there are many, many, many people around the world who today are facing not, not just people being critical of them, but whose lives are in the balance, their physical lives are in the balance because of their faith in Jesus Christ. The, those, those people, the multitudes, when Jesus said these hard things that were, were hard for them to understand, they kind of evaporated, they disappeared. His disciples stayed put because they had a, an immediate relationship with him. And they recognized in him something worthy of putting their trust, their faith, their lives in. And so Peter says those awesome words, how can we turn away from the promises? How can we, how can we walk away from you? Where would we go? Oh, it's, it's gonna get rough, we know it, you've told us, but, but where would we go? Where would we go? Who, who else has the words of eternal life besides you, Jesus Christ? So we can ask ourselves the question today, how can we turn away from the promises when we know them to be true? How can we go back? We don't understand it all, but we've seen enough to be able to trust our lives to Jesus. Fourth characteristic of people of faith. It was not just some vague theory in their minds. They died in faith. They died in faith. Jan Odell was a teacher in the Illinois Conference. Her husband was a pastor. Rick Odell worked for many years as a, as a uh, 
on the pastoral staff of 3ABN. He became a pastor, a Seventh-day Adventist, uh, through uh, being working in the, in the uh, control booth at uh, 3ABN. He, was, he would, had, was a childhood friend of Danny Shelton's, and Danny hired him to run master control, which is, sounds really elaborate, but what it amounts to is somebody with eyes on the screen of the broadcast to make sure that nothing happens, and if it does, they call the engineer or somebody else. So he hired uh, Rick Odell to come and watch that screen uh, for eight, nine, ten hours a day. And Rick began hearing things he had never heard before. He had come out of the Pentecostal movement, um, and uh, he, uh, he began hearing things taught from the Bible that he would, had not known, and he, he did something. He began taping <laughs> those, those episodes and taking them home and watching them again at home with his wife. And uh, through that experience, they ended up becoming Seventh-day Adventists. They joined the church. They were convinced the truth of this message. And eventually, Rick became a pastor in the Illinois Conference and his wife a teacher in one of the Adventist schools in Joliet. And it was there that they were serving when one day they came to the conference office and they came to my office and said, uh, Ken, we've just come from the doctor's office and Jan has been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And I don't know if you've had experience with a loved one, friend, that has had Lou Gehrig's disease, but it's a horrible, crippling, debilitating disease that progresses and progresses and eventually has, it leads to death. I remember Jan saying to me as she uh, was standing there, she, she said, she got emotional only when she came to this one point and she said, I can't hold babies anymore. Her arms weren't strong enough. She finished out that school year, but then had to retire, resign. And uh, Rick continued on in his role as pastor in that district. And uh, true to the prognosis, her condition began to deteriorate. She soon had to be uh, walking with canes and eventually was in, a, was in a, um, one of those little scooters. <laughs> Funny story, they said that when Christmas came, she wanted, knowing this could be her last Christmas, she wanted to go down to Michigan Avenue in Chicago and uh, see the lights and see the window displays on Michigan Avenue. And so her caregiver and her husband loaded her up and her took, took her down there. And then they told this story, because she continued to live her life joyfully. But they said, they, they said laughing that how she cleared the sidewalks as she raced down the street, down the sidewalks of Michigan Avenue, people jumping to get out of her way as she was experiencing Michigan Avenue's Christmas lights. She continued to live her life with joy and confidence, but the disease was not to be stopped. Eventually, she found herself in a hospital bed in their living room. And that's where I found her on a Wednesday afternoon. I stopped by to uh, just check up and she was very weak. Her sister and brother-in-law were there, her husband was there, several others. I walked in and I'll tell you what, I, I pastored for quite a while and I never mastered knowing what to say in those situations. You just struggle to know what to say. And so I said, how are you today, Jan? 
little smiles. She, she couldn't speak any longer. Um, very weak. She could move her hand a little bit. And they were able through, you know the little magnetic boards that we all had to, for our kids to learn the alphabet on? <laughs> you know, put the, put the magnetic pieces where they go. And, well, they had one of those boards for her. And she could still move her hand enough that she could point out letters and spell out words. And so she beckoned for that, that board to be brought. And they brought the board to her and she just slowly and laboriously spelled out the words, I can see the beautiful city. And they took the board away. But as they did, she motioned it for them to bring it back. And again, she carefully, slowly, meticulously pointed out the letters that said, my bags are all packed. And the next day, she died. That sounds like a sad story. And it is in a way, because she didn't, have the chance to see her grandchildren grow up. But it's a, it's, a, it's a joyful story too because another person died solid in their faith, knowing what their destiny was, not in fear, but knowing that they were safe by faith in the hands of Jesus. Some would challenge us. Well, some would challenge us on this whole thing of the belief that Jesus is coming back or that he's coming back soon. I, I did a presentation at a United Church of Christ one time. They wanted to know about what Seventh-day Adventists believe. So on a Wednesday night, I went and met them. They had a, uh, a meal and then afterwards uh, this, this time of uh, presentation and then questions and answers after that. Did the presentation and after the presentation was over, it was time for questions and answers, got some very generic questions and, and they were very kind, very nice. Uh, but then the man sitting back about there, he raised his hand and I called on him and he said to me, he said, I don't mean to be rude, but isn't it presumptuous to believe that after 2,000 years, Jesus will come back in your lifetime? <laughs> Have you ever had that question? <laughs> and I said, you know what, brother? It may be. It may be. But if it is presumptuous, I have good company because the Apostle Paul believed Jesus would come back in his time. And followers of Jesus have believed that throughout the course of Christian history. And I said, brother, it is not so much, it's not so much about the time as it is the desire to be face to face with Jesus. When he comes as secondary, the primary thing is that we want to see him. We want to be with him. We want to live with him. 
comes out of hearts of people who long to be in the homeland. Reality is that none of us here know when Jesus is going to come. We think because of our current circumstances, it can't last much longer. And we hope that it is soon. But we don't know for sure when it will be. But we have the hope that it will be in our lifetime. When I'm, I see I'm out of time, but can I keep going? Um, I, I'm not a too much longer here. <laughs> I took a group of pastors from Illinois to uh, the Holy Land once, a number of years back. And on Sabbath, we made our way to the uh, garden tomb, one of the three main places that people say that Jesus was buried after his crucifixion. The garden tomb is probably the least likely of the three, but it's the one I like because it most closely resembles the pictures in Uncle Arthur's Bible storybooks. <laughs> it's got the gardens around, it's got the stone, and, and uh, so you can go inside there and, and see. If it's not, it's at least like the tomb where Jesus was buried. And afterwards, uh, they have places set up around there in the garden where people can go and celebrate communion service. And we had made a reservation to go there and, and have that time together. Uh, and um, we said a few words, we prayed together, we had the bread, we had the wine. Somebody didn't get the memo that we did grape juice instead of wine, so we all chugged our half thimble of, of real wine. <laughs> One of the very, 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 very few times in my life I've had anything with alcohol in it. Um, and then, as the, as the disciples did, we sang a song after the supper. We sang, we have this hope. And we belted it out. <laughs> Here's the garden, big open space with other groups all around. We, we sang our hearts out. And when it was all done, we began to leave that little area headed towards the gate to get back on our bus. And as we're walking along, a group came up to us and said, was that you singing that song? And we said, yeah, that was us. And they said, are you Seventh-day Adventists? And they said, yeah. And we said, yeah, we are. And they said, so are we. We're from Brazil. <laughs> and so we walked along together with that group. And as we're walking along together, another group comes up and says, was that you singing that? Yes, it was us singing that song. Are you Seventh-day? Yes, we're Seventh-day Adventists. So are we, we're from Great Britain. And so these three groups from very different parts of the world walked along together, bound together by that hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, I told that story one time and a lady came up to me afterwards and she says, you know, I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm a visitor here today, but I just want you to know that you're not the only ones who have hope. And I said, sister, I know that there are others that have hope. I know that. But we've got the song. <laughs> we have this hope. It's, it's, it's embedded in our name. We have this hope. It's the anthem of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So those are the four characteristics of the faithful. On that last one, let me tell one final story. My dad was not a saint. He was not a perfect person, but he was a, he was a good father. And uh, he, he was diagnosed in 2014 
with acute leukemia. And four weeks to the day after he was diagnosed, he died. And as they were removing him from their house, he, by the way, he, he celebrated life during those four weeks. His friends and family came to visit, and I say he held court in his bedroom. Uh, everybody would go back there and they'd tell old stories and laugh and, and remember God's goodness in their lives and pray together. And uh, that's how he spent the last four weeks. But the final day, he had a great deal of pain. He hadn't had any up until that point. My mom sent for an ambulance to take him to the hospice center and they came and they picked him up and as he was being wheeled out, I guess he must have known how serious it was. They didn't think it was that serious. But uh, he said to my mom, he held her hand and he says, I'll see you in heaven. Now he had his eschatology a little bit wrong because he'll see her before he gets to heaven. But nevertheless, he said, I'll see you in heaven. And on the ambulance ride to the hospice center, he died. But to me, what's important is he died in his faith in Jesus Christ as his savior, which puts him in my mind on the, on the list. <laughs> on the list. Four characteristics of people of faith. They embraced the promises. Secondly, they sought a homeland, a better heavenly country. Third, they refused to go back where they came from. Where else can we go? You've got the words of eternal life, Jesus. And fourth, they died in their faith. They were faithful even unto death. If we've taken the name of Jesus Christ and it's based on faith, not just as an identity with a group of people, but it's based on faith in Jesus Christ, these characteristics will represent us as well, not just those few people listed in Hebrews 11. Again, they are, they embraced the promises, they sought a homeland, they refused to go back, and they died in faith. My prayer today for myself and for you is that I will be, and that you will be, a person of faith, sharing the confidence, the hope that people can have based on your own experience in Jesus Christ. That we can be truly Adventists, people who look forward to the soon coming of Jesus Christ with hope and joy, looking forward to being face to face with our Savior.